God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Um, thus ends the reading of the word of God for this evening, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's many ways to evaluate the integrity of someone's character. Perhaps one of the clearest ways to do this is to see how they react when other people slander them. In, in other words, what do they do when people start maligning them, when they start attacking them, when they're accused of things that, frankly, everybody knows that they're not guilty of? What do they do and how do they react to slander? Do they respond with more slander? Do they just heap slander on top of slander? Do they play the game uh, where if they uh, receive slander, they then defame someone in response? Or do they do something else? That is, do they fight slander with more slander? Do they take steps to assure that the truth is upheld? Uh, Nowadays, it certainly turns a lot of heads when people receive uh, maligning, uh, that, are, that is, words, when they receive words that are meant to hurt them, and someone, the very person whom the, who receives those words, uh, somehow turns the phrase and ends up hurting that person in response. But it's something that's distinctively characteristic of the follower of Jesus to respond in ways that safeguards the truth. Uh, that endorses the truth, that maintains the truth, and the whole of the truth. That's something that's very much characteristic of the way in which those who are in Christ lead our lives. In other words, we don't respond to slander in the way that the world responds to slander. We respond to slander and maligning by upholding the truth, the way that the truth wants itself to be upheld. Now, doing that, upholding the truth the way that it was meant to be upheld, has a a lot of different uh, avenues by which you can find some sort of way in which it turns out. It may end up hurting someone uh, by upholding the truth. You may end up saying things that end up hurting them. Or it might make someone angry by just exposing the truth to them. But nevertheless, our responsibility is, uh, is, is to react to character assassination by the open endorsement of the truth, by, na- by maintaining a clear conscience before God and men. 
In other words, when we're slandered, we don't respond in kind. And I submit to you that if you react like this, uh, if you react to slander by upholding the truth, you will certainly be vindicated in this age or in the age to come. Certainly, with a 100% success rate, you will certainly be vindicated whether in this age or on the last day. Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist minister in the 1800s, was a pastor of virtually unparalleled quality. Most of you know who Charles Spurgeon is, so I don't really need to say much about him. He he powerfully and eloquently preached to thousands on Lord's Day morning services and evening services. Um, I could say a lot about uh, him. He is basically a pastor without parallel. He is known as the Prince of Preachers. Uh, I once read a book that was about Charles Spurgeon, a book that's called Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism. And in that uh, book, uh, it recounts stories, it gives all these stories of other ministers who would write incredibly defamatory things about Spurgeon. Uh, they would even preach against Charles Spurgeon, naming him by, uh, to, to, to their congregations. Uh, they would say things like, he's a heretic, that uh, he was unqualified to serve as a pastor. As a matter of fact, you are barely to receive him as a brother in Christ at all. Uh, do you know what his heresy was? He believed that you should offer the gospel to sinners. That was his heresy. He believed in the free offer of the gospel to sinners. Now, to this very day, I can't tell you who it was who defamed him. To this very day, I cannot tell you who it was, the names of those who slandered him. I have no idea who they were, and neither does anybody else who, haven't, who hasn't studied it this, this afternoon, who hasn't looked it up. And you know why I have no idea who these people are, and why hardly anybody knows who these people who slandered him were? I'll tell you exactly why, because their slander died with them. That's why nobody knows them anymore. And it's because upholding the truth will always vindicate you, whether in this life or in the next. When people malign you about the things of Christ, you being in and with Christ, having a clear conscience before God and men are to endorse the truth and the whole of it in the way that it was meant to be endorsed and you will always win. In the end, this is what we see Jesus doing here in our passage, particularly uh, regarding his own person. And uh, we see that the Jews here uh, believe it's a change of audience of sorts. They've got a number of accusations that they throw at the Lord Jesus, and we see how he handles him. So we'll see this evening, as it's printed in your bulletin, that Jesus responds to the accusations of the Jews uh, how by maintaining the truth of his very person. And Uh, The sermon is basically, uh, the backbone of the sermon is tailored from those accusations themselves. Accusation number one, he has a demon. Accusation number two, he's conceited. And accusation number three, he is finite. And we come to the first accusation in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? And now we notice something about this first accusation here, namely in the way that it's framed. Take a look at it in in your Bibles again. It's framed in such a way that there's really no way to answer this question without sounding disrespectful. 
there's really no way that, uh, that you can answer this, uh, this question uh, without imposing something negative upon the audience. They say, are we not right in saying such and such? The, 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 uh, the underlying uh, notion of this text here is that if you answer no, well, then you're insinuating that they're incompetent, right? So just the way that, even the way that, that, that this first accusation is given tells us the sinister kind of approach that these people have about Jesus right out the gate, even in just answering the question, phrasing it like, like this. But they say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Uh, now, uh, to get to the answer of the question, you perhaps know this, that being a Samaritan, being called a Samaritan in that day was not a very nice thing at all. Uh, you know, perhaps, that Jews um, and regarded Samaritans as apostate. Uh, they regarded Samaritans as heretical. Uh, they are of a different religion. Uh, so they are heretical. And this, uh, this is obviously uh, meant as a dig against Jesus. And this also, uh, when they say, aren't we right in saying that you have a demon, this isn't the first time that Jesus is accused of harboring some sort of demonic activity. This isn't the first time that Jesus is, is accused of this in his ministry, nor would it be the last time. And later on in this gospel, as a matter of fact, if you fast forward to chapter 10, uh, verse 20, he is again going to be accused of having a demon over the things that he says. Uh, matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, there's a part where Jesus, uh, he heals a person of his being demon-possessed. He exercises a demon out of a person, casting a demon out of a person. And the response of the religious elite is, he's got a demon. Go figure. It's by the prince of, uh, of darkness. Uh, it's by Beelzebul that this person casts out demons. But his response to them, verse 49, says, I do not have a demon. Notice that he doesn't respond to being associated with uh, Samaritans. He doesn't respond to that other accusation. I per personally uh, enjoy Augustine's comment on this. Augustine, a church father in the late 300s, early 400s, he says this, uh, that he doesn't respond to being called a Samaritan because in chapter 4 that we see that he has Samaritan followers. So he, being the guardian of his flock, won't deny those who put their faith in him. We can see that by way of omission here, and I think that's, that's at least worth considering, at the very least. In other words, uh, that, that's, that's even a point that may apply to your very circumstances yourself, that the world can marginalize you all at once. The world can malign you. The, 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 the world can accuse you. The Bible says, let God be true, though every, every single person be a liar. Seven billion people or so. Uh, one pastor says, God, uh, you plus God equals a majority all the time. The world may malign you. Jesus will never deny you. The world may ostracize you. It may set you apart. It may laugh at you. It may, it may decry that you are in the wrong. It may sideline you. The Lord Jesus will never deny you. He will never deny the work that he's put in your hearts, ever. You're with him. He's with you to stay for all eternity. So you see this by way of omission here. If Augustine is right, which I think is something that uh, we should at least consider, there, there is a pastoral uh, sort of situation that I can be as filthy as possible. I can be laughed at by the world. I can be ridiculed. Jesus will never deny 
those in whom he has given this work of redemption. God will never deny his children. Notice also what he says further in his response uh, to this accusation. He says, I honor my father and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. Now, of all the activities that uh, set apart demons, well, as demons, glorifying the Father is not one of them. Uh, Nor is it the case that demons could even say, or even want, for that matter, to counterbalance the honor that's given to them with the honor that's given to the Father. This does not sound like someone who is demon-possessed, who wants to honor the Father, right? Nor is it the case that they wouldn't in some sense seek their own glory. I say this because demonic activity, including basically every sin that you can think of, in many or all of its forms, is always about the business of robbing God of the honor that is due to him and him alone. It's Jesus' task to give glory to his Father. He loves his Father, and so loving his Father, he seeks to glorify his Father, And in turn, he knows that his father will turn around and he will seek the son's glory because the son, because the father judges the son worthy to receive it. And that's what that phrase in verse 50 essentially means. The original, when it says, yet I do not seek my own glory, that phrase, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge in the original, I think it's a little bit more clear. There is one who seeks and judges in other words, what this means is that the father looks upon the son, and he, uh, he, he, by the way, he looks upon the son, not these people here, and determines that the son is worthy of the same honor that's due to the father. And the son is confident in this, and the son loves this. And now at this point, anyone with a brain uh, can stand back and say, well, this immediate accusation breaks down. Anyone who is listening up to this point can listen to what Jesus says, and everyone know, would know that with the, the clarity with which he speaks, and by the content of his words, that everything points upward. And so he ends his response to this accusation by giving yet another gospel moment in verse 51. This, this isn't the words of someone who is demon-possessed, in other words. A demon wouldn't say the things in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He gives this invite again to his person and his benefits, being himself the Lord of life, even though his very accusers accuse him of being possessed by the prince of darkness. Again, you see that he stays true to his person, uh, even in giving an invite to the gospel itself, even to his accusers. Uh, we have a, a, yet another invite. I think there's about three other invites just in chapter 8 alone. We have an invite that Jesus even gives his very accusers to come take of him and receive eternal life from him. And so we see that that accusation that he has a demon falls flat on its face. But the fact that he ends on yet another invite doesn't stop them from giving yet another accusation, which is our second point uh, this evening, that he is conceited. Despite the things that Jesus just said, right, you see the tenor of this, this passage, despite the things that Jesus had just said in the way that he had said it, 
despite the, the, the fact that this does not sound at all like Jesus is demon-possessed, it doesn't look like Jesus is demon-possessed at all, he seeks to glorify the Father, yet verse 52, the Jews say to him, now we know that you have a demon. Uh, now, right here, I want you to know that this passage speaks and very loudly announces to us the utter unreasonability of these people and their determination to not listen. They're determined to not listen, that they persist in their accusation in the face of all the evidence to the contrary. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you will have accusers who will not listen. You definitely will. If you, perhaps you have them right now, perhaps you've had them in the past, do not be like them in response. Uh, You will have people who don't care what you say, don't care how you say it, do not be like them in response. We endorse the, the truth. We expose the truth in the manner in which it calls us to do so. But they persist in their, their accusation a little bit further, saying, Abraham died as the prophets uh, did, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to, to be? Now, we notice a couple of things here. Firstly, that they actually misquote Jesus. You probably saw that. They misquote Jesus. What he said was that they will never see death. What they said is that they will never taste death. It's a rather subtle uh, misquotation, but essentially they represent him as though he's saying that if anyone follows him, they're never, ever going to die, ever, ever, ever. That's essentially how they misquote them. And now we know that that's not what Jesus was saying, and I think that they did as well. Death is the consequence of sin, and Jesus takes all the consequences of our sin upon him. And so he tastes death on the cross, as will the believer at the end of their life in this age. So they misquote him uh, with a subtlety that's actually not very subtle, um, but it makes all the difference, doesn't it? But notice, too, that when they misquote him, they inadvertently say something else that has the real potential to destroy their own foundations. Uh, take a look at that, uh, that passage again. Take a look at it. They say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Now, of course, the irony of this is, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, he is, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> greater than Abraham and all of the prophets who came before them. Uh, he's, the very cent- he's at the very center of the life of Abraham and all the prophets. Uh, Revelation 13, uh, the testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus is at the very center and at the very conclusion. He fulfills all of these. So yes, He is greater. But notice that when they say this, their intent is so that they can accuse him even further. They want to show that he's conceited, uh, that he makes claims about himself that they think that he can never deliver on. Uh, Really, we can say that they believe that he is inadequate. They want to show that he is conceited and that he is inadequate. But what they end up doing inadvertently is they point out the weakness of their own theological system. Uh, that you can even be Abraham, you can be the father of the Jews, you can be any one of the prophets, Samuel, Isaiah, Uh, you can be any one of the prophets with all of their obedience and still come under the consequences of sin and die. Uh, 
Now, if they are looking to slander Jesus, if they're looking to accuse Jesus as being inadequate, uh, as being an, an, an inadequate savior, I could say it that way, this is not a good look for them to point out the weaknesses of their forefathers and spiritual leaders who they claim to follow because they themselves have suffered the consequences of sin. In other words, it does them no favors to show that Jesus is an inadequate savior when the people who they say that they follow are themselves inadequate. If anything, they'd want to point, to, point out their strengths, right? Not their weaknesses. If anything, they, they, they want to say, are you greater than Abraham, who is a friend of God? Isaiah 48, 41 verse 8. Uh, they, they would say, are you greater than perhaps Samuel, who, 2 Samuel 13, when people uh, were, they, they were murdered, they get thrown into Samuel's uh, grave, they come back to uh, life, or Elisha, rather. Uh, are, are you greater than Isaiah, who has cured Hezekiah of his uh, sickness? Are you greater than, uh, than, than all these prophets who have come before? They, they, would, they should. It bolsters their, their, their accusation to show their strengths, not their weaknesses. So when they say this, when they say Abraham died, as all the prophets did, what they inadvertently do is they end up burning down their entire system. They end up undercutting exactly what they stand for. And notice that this happens all throughout the Gospel of John from this very point, and it gives us a grander picture that the rejection of Jesus always comes at a much larger cost than anyone can possibly pay. The rejection of Jesus is a much larger thing than just what it is at face value. Again, this gospel is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And when you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, you enter into chaos land. When you reject the Lord Jesus and everything that he stands for, it has the potential to destroy your life in this age, and it definitely will destroy your life in the age to come. Reject, the rejection of Jesus always comes at a much larger cost than what it is at face value. So they try to accuse him of being conceited. Uh, they end up showing the weaknesses of their own religious system. But again, Jesus maintains the truth of his person, uh, not calling glory to himself, not playing into their accusations of him uh, being conceited, although it's true that Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's not the one to announce this. He says, verse 54, the Father can certainly claim this. This is the Father's task. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. This, by the way, tells us something about their religious system, doesn't it? When Jesus, the Lord of life, uh, the second person of the Trinity, says, you have not known him. This tells us something about the weaknesses of their religious system. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. In other words, he maintains the truth of his person, that it's the task of the Father to glorify him, and that knowledge of God in this way includes honoring his Son, who receives glory from the Father, and who doesn't call glory to himself. This, if anything, is not the traits of someone who is conceited. This does not look like someone who is filled with themselves. 
for all intents and purposes, this, uh, this, is all, this has all of the hallmarks of a very humble man, not calling to himself his own glory, but rather receiving it from his father. And the accusation of him being conceited should also fall by the wayside, just as the first accusation should as well. So we've seen that Jesus, uh, he is not demon-possessed, he's not conceited, and that leads us to our third uh, accusation, or the Jews' third accusation uh, in this passage, that he's finite. He's finite. And for this accusation, of course, Jesus operates as he does with the understanding that he is, in fact, greater than Abraham, uh, which he is, of course. And now that they brought Abraham into the discussion... Uh, He can point out now that Abraham himself looked forward to the fulfillment of the promises given to him. Uh, Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. In other words, uh, I I don't like the translation of this. Your father Abraham rejoiced in order that he might see my day. Well, well, he saw it and then he was glad. Now, there is a debate uh, as to when it was that Abraham rejoiced in order that he would see the day of Jesus. Uh, The commentaries here widely uh, differ. Some say it was originally given in the promises um, in Genesis 12, specifically that uh, Abraham would would be a blessing, a source of blessing to all the nations. Uh, Some say it was when he saw that the ram was given as a sacrifice instead of his son, Genesis 22. Uh, I personally take it to mean that it's a reference to Genesis 18, Uh, Regardless, we notice a a few things uh, when Jesus says this. Firstly, that Abraham sees the day of Jesus and rejoiced to see the day of Jesus even in the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament, again, has Christ as its center and its end. You can't understand the Old Testament without uh, knowing that it's fulfilled in Christ. I usually say that the bottom drops out of the meaning of the Old Testament when you don't um, uh, elude it over to Christ. When, it, when you don't allow it to point to Jesus, you, it doesn't make sense anymore. So yes, the Old Testament speaks of Christ no less than the life of Abraham does. Uh, secondly, take a look at how Abraham is utilized in, in this accusation here. The Jews present him as some sort of uh, exemplar, uh, thinking that there's perhaps no one greater to show that Jesus is conceited, and yet Jesus says that it's, it's Abraham himself who saw the day of Jesus, and he was glad. What a contrast to their own reaction. They want to kill him, which they do in the end of the chapter. They, they, they pick up stones in order to throw him. They want to kill him. And they claim to follow Abraham. Well, if, if, they, if they did, if they would actually follow Abraham, they'd be overflowing with joy just as Abraham would and was. So they use him as a candidate to show how Jesus is conceited and how Jesus is finite, but it falls flat because Jesus just says that Abraham's on his team. Uh, so you can call to Abraham all you want. Uh, Abraham is on Jesus' team. And thirdly, that Jesus assumes that he was a contemporary with Abraham. And this is the focus of the next verse in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? In other words, they think to themselves, You are finite. You are finite. You can't say that you've been around at the same time that Abraham has. That was 1,800 plus years ago. You are not yet in your 50s. And yet you claim to know all this about Abraham, our father. You've seen Abraham. And ironically, 
Uh, yes, <laughs> as, as a matter of fact, uh, yes, he has. So one commentator says this, that the word of the eternal God cannot be anything other than eternal. Uh, so yes, as a matter of fact, uh, he has. The second person of the Trinity was instrumental in the creation of all things, all of the created order at the beginning. He appeared to Abraham at the oak, uh, by the oak at Mamre in Genesis 18. So yes, he was a contemporary of Abraham. In fact, uh, he was the one to whom Abraham bowed in Genesis 18. And so verse 58, uh, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, here's another clear admission of his own deity, full equality with the Father, uh, which is a far, far greater claim, uh, by the way, than just that he is Abraham's contemporary. And they definitely understood this. And they were operating as though Jesus is a finite man and as, as though that's all he was. But they knew the claims that he was making of himself. Uh, these were not claims of his own limitations. These were claims of his own deity. Now, why is he saying this? Why does he say, before Abraham was, I am? Well, because he's maintaining the truth of his person. He's telling them the truth. He's exposing the truth uh, in exactly the way that the truth should be exposed He's not hiding behind uh, some sort of uh, veil of obscurity. He's not mincing words. He's handling uh, th these accusations about his person with truth claims of his person. And so they, knowing that he's saying what he is, verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, stoning was the punishment for blasphemy uh, during this time. And they, operating as though he's finite, they want to stone him. They bring accusations, again, on three specific counts that we've seen tonight. Number one, that he has a demon. Uh, number two, that he's conceited. And number three, that he's finite. And of course, we uh, who are filled with the Spirit know that nothing of these accusations actually sticks. As a matter of fact, they're worse off after having accused him but he reveals something of himself, uh, namely that before Abraham was, I am, and the rejection of him that will even cause their hearts to want to put the Lord of glory to death uh, by crucifixion just a few months later. Of course, they don't realize that, again, the irony, he will rise again. So what have we seen tonight? We've seen what's printed in your bulletin, that Jesus responds to the accusations of the Jews. How? By maintaining the truth of his own person. And I just have a couple of applications for us tonight. Firstly, brothers and sisters, trust that Jesus has taken everything that accuses you upon himself. Trust that Jesus has taken everything that accuses you upon himself. Uh, we've seen that this passage is a time where Jesus again, receives a number of accusations, but none of them stick. But we all, we of all people can appreciate that one of the tasks of Jesus as our Redeemer is to take upon himself the accusations that rightly belong to us, that actually do stick and make us accountable to God. That is to say that the law of God accuses us of sin, and outside the work of Christ, we have no advocate. Outside of the work of Christ, we have no hope of, of, of our lawlessness ever being forgiven outside the work of Christ. But the Bible speaks of Christ, Psalm 69, quoted in Romans 15, 
the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That is, by grace alone, through faith alone, we have Jesus as the one who stands, who takes our sins from us. He takes all that rightly accuses us. Upon his shoulders, he pays for it with, him, with his own blood. And he gives to us a new spirit, his own spirit. He gives to us a new heart. So the child of God is never in a position to where we don't appreciate the work that's done for us in Christ. Uh, we see in this passage that Jesus absorbs accusations that were wrongfully given to him. And in the Christian life, we see that Jesus absorbs all of the accusations that are rightly given to us. We see in this picture a gospel moment. In just a little bit, we're going to be singing a song, a hymn that has lyrics that say this. Ask the question, Jesus, what, did, what didst thou find in me that thou hast dealt so lovingly? How great the joy that thou hast brought, so, so, so far exceeding hope or thought. It starts with a legitimate question. Because in and of ourselves, it starts with this question, what did you find in me that you dealt with us so lovingly? And the reason why it's a legitimate question is because in and of ourselves, we have nothing in which for God to deal lovingly with us. But we're in Christ. We have Christ as our advocate. We have Christ as our mediator. We have Christ as the one who sends the Spirit into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have Christ who has shed his blood for us. We have Christ who has given us of his own righteousness. We have Christ who has taken our sins upon his shoulder, uh, taking them the, the full brunt, the full cup of the wrath of God upon his very self. And what does he give us in, in return? He gives us heaven. He gets our hell. We get his heaven. We who are in Christ have the only mediator between God and man. Trust, brothers and sisters, that Jesus has taken everything that accuses you upon his own shoulders. Secondly, combat slander with the truth. Combat slander with the truth. We've seen how Jesus responds to personal attacks that his accusers don't even quote him right. We see that his accusers, they garble his words to make him sound way more confusing, that they take his words in the most uncharitable light that they can. And then we see what he does. He maintains the truth of his person. He doesn't overemphasize. He doesn't underspeak. He plainly gives them the truth. He calmly gives them the truth about himself. When others slander you, when others malign you, especially when they do so because you're a Christian, you are to hold out the truth to them openly, the way that it was supposed to be held out to them openly. That is to say, when slandered, we don't retaliate. Uh, we seek to make amends. We seek to communicate, uh, to gather the truth of the matter. We own up for whatever we're responsible for, and then we provide opportunities for apologies for slander, and we reconcile from there. Even if it's the case that the slander reveals perhaps a defect in your own life, you could certainly take account of that because that's an endorsement of the truth. And by the way, if you're the cause of slander, do everything that you can to reconcile because that's not how we operate. When we combat slander with the truth, we announce to the world that we don't operate on their level according to their, their, their rules. We follow the example of the Lord Jesus here, who when reviled did not revile in return, 1 Peter 2. We also follow the example of the many followers of Jesus, the many disciples, the people of God and Christ who have gone before. We endorse the truth. We expose the truth. When we do this, we commend ourselves to God, who is truth itself, and to others' consciences. 
And yes, at some point we will be vindicated, whether in this life or in the next. So combat slander with the endorsement and the exposition of the truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven,